your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Go up there and check that real quick. Just go behind the curtain and no, right here, Mitch. You're going to walk up actually behind the curtain and be distracting. Right all the way through here. Yeah, just to make sure. Um, Revelation chapter three. We're, we're going to start in verse one. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. And the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you were dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we, we just come to you acknowledging our ongoing need of you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us um, as we look into your word and as we examine your word. And Lord, as you use your word to examine us, that our minds would understand or be illumined so that we understand the text, Lord, that our hearts would be transformed by it. And as a result, we would go out and live differently in a way that honors your son as a result of hearing your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you, you guys ever known a person, you known a person or been a person, or maybe you currently are a person who has a reputation for being a pretty nice Christian guy or gal, pretty serious about your faith possibly, maybe you have the reputation of being the real deal, and yet you know that you're not really as spiritually alive as people think, and maybe you're just really spiritually dead. You know, and I don't mean completely spiritually dead, but more like, you know, the Princess Bride. You guys seen the Princess Bride? Mostly dead, right? You know, you're mostly dead spiritually. You put off a great image of Christianity. Everyone thinks you're great. Everyone sees you as spiritually alive. You're active in the church. You're active in a small group. You serve on Sunday mornings. You go on short-term mission trips. You give regularly. You know all the Christian lingo and vocabulary, whatever it happens to be. You carry around a really large study Bible. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. You have the Christian t-shirts, the Christian candy, the Christian bumper stickers, and shelves full of Christian books. You have a nice family. Somewhere in in your house, you have a very visible, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You don't drink or smoke or chew, and and you know the rest of that. You 
Yet you know deep down, deep down, when no one's looking, you're really not that interested in reading your Bible. Deep down, you know that you really don't care to pray that much. Maybe other than to ask God for something when things are bad. You don't really have a passion for Jesus. In other words, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. You're caught in a spiritual lethargy. You've checked out of a real pursuit of Christ. But you're really the only person who knows it. Why? Because you're more concerned about the reputation you have than the reality of your spiritual life. You're all style and really not much substance. I, I've been this person. I don't know about you, I've been this person. I was for the first four years of my marriage this person. I wanted to be known as a nice, conservative Christian guy. I had a nice wife and a nice house and went to church and was a pretty decent human being. But I really wasn't particularly interested in reading my Bible, really wasn't any kind of vigorous prayer life in which I came before God for something other than just things I needed or wanted. I was just kind of humming along trying to keep a good reputation. In fact, I really didn't want to answer the question if someone asked me, how much do you read your Bible and pray, and how much do you pray? I really didn't ever want to hear that question asked. Because I was afraid that I would have to say, you know, maybe once every few weeks, And even then, it's like a chore rather than a joy. I looked good on the outside, but in the inside I was full of dead men's bones. It's what Jesus calls being a whitewashed tomb. You know, I still have a strong tendency in that direction. There are times I have weeks where it takes everything I have to have any desire to open the word. I mean, it's, it's, it takes work for me just to get up and do it. Or to want to pray. But I don't want anybody to know that because I want people to think I'm still real zealous for Jesus. Right? I've had weeks during my seven years of ministry where I've walked into the pulpit and faked it. Seven years of ministry. I have walked into the pulpit and faked it. I've made people think, man, that guy is spiritually alive. He's on fire. Look at him go. And it was just a show. So that I could keep a certain kind of reputation. I have weeks now where I'm tempted to do the same. Happens. Tempted to do the same. It isn't... This doesn't just happen on an individual level. You know that, right? It doesn't just happen to me as an individual or to you as individuals. It happens to churches corporately. Corporately, churches can have a reputation of being alive, but they're really dead. Churches can become quite well-spoken of in a community. They can be the place to be in a community. They're the happening church. That's where it's all going on right there. 
great reputation and yet be spiritually dead, or at least mostly spiritually dead. Why does it happen? Why does it happen? And we tend to refer to these churches as what? They kind of went from being a church to being a what? Country club, right? It's like, remember the day when they were a church and now they're a country club. And if they're not big and rich, then they're just kind of some social club, right? Because we don't want to call them a country club then because it's not a very nice church that happens to be dead. So what is it that changes a church into a social club or a country club? What is it that changes, or what is it that drives us to have this great reputation and yet be spiritually dead? How does a church become a country club, and how does we as individuals experience the same kind of change? How does that occur? That's the question I want to answer this morning. As we look at the letter to the church of Sardis, I want to answer that question really in six parts. One, I want to talk about who the church is. Who is this church that Jesus is writing to? Two, I want to talk about the characteristics of the author or how does Jesus present himself to this church and why does that matter to them? Three, I want to talk about the condemnation that Jesus gives to the church. Four, the command to repent that he gives to them. Five, the consequence for not repenting that he warns them about. And six, the commitment to those who overcome, the commitment that he makes to those who do repent. As with all seven letters, this letter is written specifically to a historical church in the first century named Sardis. But as with all of them, they have this phrase in them. He who hears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, they have application to every church throughout history. We all need to heed the warning of this letter So what's the setting of the church in Sardis? What's the setting? Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write. What's the setting for this church? Sardis was a city that um, that came into being in about 1200 B.C. Okay? So it came into being about 1200 B.C. And it was set on the top of several kind of alluvial hills. So all these hills. And it's, you know, I would imagine it, and I'm probably wrong, but I would imagine it a bit like, um, if you go to Arizona and you see some of these um, cities that can almost be set up on the top of a, it's like a, what do they call those, Rex? Um, a mesa, there you go. It's like on the top of a mesa and on one side of all the way around, you, you know, except for one area where you can come up, it's just a sheer descent. Sardis is like that. It's on top of these alluvial hills set up there and all the way around except for one place, it's a 1,500 foot descent to the valley. Sheer descent, 1,500 feet. There's only one small entrance up, and you have to come up into the city. And so it was an easy place to guard or protect. All they had to do was station soldiers right down at the small part where the people try to come up because they never had to worry about soldiers coming up these 1,500-foot sheer walls. And so they just stationed soldiers there, and then they could take down armies when they came in fairly easily because they had the higher position. It was considered impenetrable due to these walls. Prior to the Roman Empire, Sardis was considered the capital of Asia Minor. I mean, it was the capital of Asia Minor. Until about 600 B.C., something happened. Cyrus, the king of Persia, invaded the city and he conquered it. And he did it in an interesting way. Because the city only put guards in that one little narrow neck of land, they snuck soldiers up those walls 
They found a way to get one soldier after another to climb these 1,500-foot walls and took them by surprise and took the city out because they had no guards there, no protection. They thought they were safe, and so they kind of fell asleep on one wall. And that's how the people got up. It happened again under Antiochus in 195 B.C. He used the same method. Sardis was a fairly wealthy city with a large Jewish population, had lots and lots of worship of false gods, all sorts of different pagan worship, just like the rest of the Roman Empire, and a lot of emperor worship, just like the rest of the Roman Empire. The trade guilds were prevalent throughout Sardis. This is like current-day unions, right? Except they were a little meaner. They didn't just hold out signs, shame on so-and-so. They just killed people who violated the union contract. Okay, they were a little angrier than those sorts of unions. This is, the, this is the place that this church existed. This is the place that Jesus addresses himself to them. And look at what he says to them. Verse 1, And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, To the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Why the seven spirits of God? What does that mean? Why the seven stars? Why does Jesus choose to give this picture of himself to this church? Because in every single one of these letters, he gives a different picture of himself to the church. Why this one? Why not pick some other picture of himself? Why the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars? Why that? What is, how is that relevant? The seven spirits of God is another way of talking about the Holy Spirit. And it's a very specific way of talking about the Holy Spirit. It comes from Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10. It talks about the seven eyes that are seeing everything, that are looking to and fro in the land. In Revelation chapter 5 verse 6, John picks this up in his vision. And he talks about the seven eyes being the seven spirits or the Spirit of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the one who holds the Holy Spirit. And guess what the Holy Spirit does? He sees everything. He sees everything. Why is that important? Because this is a church that has a reputation for being alive, but they're dead. And what Jesus wants them to know is, while everyone else around here, you're fooling, I know. You might have this whole community convinced that you're the real deal, but you know what? I know the truth. Because I hold the Holy Spirit. I know He sees everything. And you know what else I hold? I hold the seven stars. What are the seven stars? The seven stars are the angels or the messengers to the churches. In other words, I am sovereign over your church. And I know everything that is happening there. Including the things that you think go hidden. The things that you think nobody else knows. I know them. In other words, this is a fairly scary picture of Jesus. He's letting this church know that's in some pretty rampant sin that you think you're getting away with it. But I'm in control and I know. He goes on. Not only does he know everything, he says this, I know your works. That word for know, there's two different Greek words that can be used for know. One is a progressive sort of knowledge, like you grow in wisdom or understanding. Another one is I know it all. I see it like I have a picture of it that I'm looking at. And that's what Jesus is talking about. I have a comprehensive understanding and knowledge of what's happening in your church. And what does he say to him? Right, goes right into a condemnation. There is no 
There is no commendation for this church. Nothing they're doing well. It's just condemnation right out of the gate. He says this, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And they're mostly dead. Not completely dead. How do I know they're mostly dead? Look at the next part. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Well, that's a weird thing to tell a dead person, right? Wake up and strengthen what remains. The point is when he says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead, he's using a thing called hyperbole. He's, being, he's making an emphasis by using hyperbole. We do it all the time, right? Mom, everyone's going. Well, not everyone's going. Your parents know that, and so they smart off and say, you know, well, everyone's not going in the whole world. Come on. But they do the same thing, right? Of course, you, you know, little kids, we, we never, they never called our parents on it when their parents say, you know, this is, it's just everything is going wrong. The kids go, well, not everything is going wrong. Right? You know, that never happens. But we know what hyperbole is because we use it, and he's using some hyperbole here. He's making it clear to them that I'm warning you, I know you're not as alive as you pretend. In fact, the situation is much more grim than you probably even recognize. goes on, I know that they're not completely dead also, because if you look down in verse 4, he says this, yet you have... Still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. In other words, there are still a few people in your church who are really spiritually alive, who are the real deal. Okay, so you're not completely dead. You're mostly dead as a church. They were, they were a church that had become a social club. That's what they were. They were a church that had become a country club. They were doing good works because it gave them a great reputation. They were not doing good works because it honored Christ because of faith in Him. They were doing them because of the way they wanted to look in the community. That was it. That's what what they were motivated by. How do I know that? If you look at verse 2, he says this, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. In other words, he's not saying you don't do any works. He's saying they're not complete in the sight of my God. Why not? Because they're only giving you a good reputation with the outside world. They're giving you a good reputation with man. But down deep, you know that that's the only reason you're really doing them. You're not doing them out of a desire to honor me, out of a desire to bring me glory because of your deep faith in me and love for me. You're just doing it all to have a reputation in the community. That's it. That is your bottom line. And therefore, these works are not complete in the sight of my God. This is a church in a pagan city with the same trade guilds. I want you to hear this. With the same trade guilds and social requirements to worship idols that we see in Pergamum and Thyatira. Same requirements. If they want to eat, they better worship these false gods. If they want to have a job, they better worship these false gods. If they want to be socially acceptable, they better worship these false gods. They better not declare the truth of the exclusivity of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. They better not do that. Or they're going to be hurting. Isn't it interesting, though, that in this letter you never hear anything like, I know you're enduring suffering. I know you're being persecuted. 
In other words, they're in the context in which all these other churches in in these letters, Jesus is saying to them, I know you're suffering. I know you're being persecuted because you're holding fast to my name. He never says that to them because they're not. Somehow, in the same context these other churches have existed in, in the same pagan, unbelieving world these other churches are getting persecuted in and suffering in, Sardis is managing to get themselves a good reputation in. It's interesting, they're not overrun by heretics. The Nicolaitan cult isn't there like it is in the others. They've found a way as a church to exist in the world with a great reputation and no persecution and no ridicule. They found a way to do it. They found a way to be well spoken of and be a church of Jesus Christ. How's that possible? They were not reviled or hated for their Christianity. Instead, they were well thought of. They were popular in the community. They're the place to be. I imagine at Christmas and Easter, they didn't really have those. But I imagine at Christmas and Easter, all the leaders would have wanted to go there in the community. Everybody's well known. This is the place to be. Everyone spoke well of the church in Sardis. Socially, and they were socially and culturally acceptable. They had a reputation of being a great church. This isn't a church on decline. This isn't a church like where you see some empty building sitting there with 10 people in their 80s attending it that once had a glory day. That's not this kind of church. This is a big church that is popular and well-spoken of and has a great reputation of being on the cutting edge. And they are going for it all. They're the ones everyone in the community is looking to. That's the kind of church this is. And Jesus looks at him and says, you think you're fooling everybody, but I know. So how does this happen? How does it happen today? I think the text reveals three aspects of one ultimate reason. Three aspects of one ultimate reason. The ultimate reason is this. The church becomes a country club because we suffer death by a good reputation. Hear that? The same way that we become spiritually dull. We suffer death by a good reputation. How does that happen? First aspect is, first and most foundational is this. In its activities, in its activities, the church cares more about pleasing man than about pleasing God. How do they, how do they suffer death by a good reputation? In their activities, they care more about pleasing man than they do about pleasing God. What does Paul say in Galatians 1.10? My servant of Christ? Am I trying to please Christ? Or am I trying to please man? If I'm trying to please man, guess what I cannot be? A servant of Christ. Can't do it. continues down it's interesting if you look down the other thing i want to pick up on this is not only which i pointed out to you earlier where they trying to serve man or have a good reputation with man or we're trying to please man where it says i have not found your works complete in the sight of my god in other words they're doing good works not for god's sake but just because they wanted a good reputation 
Not only that, but there's one other interesting clue as to what the problem was in Sardis. If you look down at verse 5, when he gives this promises to them, he says this, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I'll never blot out his name, never blot his name out of the book of life. I will con-. And it's this interesting phrase, Jesus says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. In other words, if you repent, I'll confess your name before my father and his angels. Repent of what? Whatever it was that was causing Jesus to not want to confess their name before his father and his angels. And what does Jesus say in the Gospels? In Matthew chapter 10, he says this. If you confess my name before men, I will confess your name before my father. In Luke chapter 12, if you confess my name before men, I will confess your name before the angels. And what Jesus also says is, if you do not confess my name before men, I will not confess your name before my father what i understand from what jesus promises them if they repent is that this is not a church that was interested in confessing the name of christ they were they were a church that was interested in pleasing everybody else they were evangelistically cold they wanted to be well thought of they were more worried about their own reputation than they were about the reputation of jesus The church is choosing what they do and what they avoid in an attempt to please the outside world. That's the picture of this church. We will choose what we do and what we avoid doing in in an effort to please the outside world. And when this happens, the church begins an inexorable slide into being a country club. When you are trying to please the unbelievers of the world via the church's activities you begin to slide into being a country club. And the point is that we slide into a mindset of trying to please those around us, don't we? And what happens then? We neglect the proclamation of Jesus and we become more concerned about our own reputation than we are about making Jesus known. And we begin the process of a slow death. And if we're believers, we begin to lose the joy of our salvation. How does it happen on the church level? Church becomes more concerned about the community speaking well of them than they are about standing for the exclusivity of Christ. It begins avoiding saying things to avoid saying things that might offend. I don't want to say this, that might offend somebody. It begins to want to do things that please unbelievers. I've heard this a million times. Well, not that many. That's hyperbole, right? (laughs) They want to do things so even unbelievers feel comfortable in the church. We want unbelievers to feel comfortable here. I hear that all the time. They want to be sensitive to those who are seeking. Some churches go so far as to remove elements like communion. Do you know that? Or crosses. They don't want to put a cross up on the outside or the inside of the building. That might offend somebody. Some churches avoid words. That's how they do it. We're going to avoid certain words. We're going to avoid the word sin. We're going to avoid the word hell. We're going to avoid the word damnation. Nobody likes those words. Those words are ominous, aren't they? 
I'm going to avoid talking about holiness, judgment, anger, and wrath. Right? Don't you think that's, there's a list of words to avoid, huh? Might offend somebody. And the church begins to eliminate them from the vocabulary. As a result, words like love and grace and mercy and salvation become meaningless. They become meaningless. Consequently, instead of talking about those, they talk about purpose and meaning and fulfillment and belonging. The concept of faith is emptied. Repentance, the word repentance is avoided and obedience is completely absent from the vocabulary. The church converts to using a gospel of the good news of how Jesus died to add a little something extra to your life. That's what the gospel is. Jesus died so he could add a little something extra to your life. Your life is pretty good. You don't really need him to be saved from sin. You need him so that you can have an even fuller life than you ever had before. In other words, you're teaching, when you're teaching that, that the father crushed his son so that you could have a little more fun in life. So that you'd be a little bit more fulfilled. What a sick idea that is. But it's being taught. He didn't die because your sin was so abhorrent to a righteous and holy God that he had to murder his own son to save you. Don't want to talk that way. Let me tell you why the gospel is so offensive and why it should be. When I tell someone God loves you and wants to be in a relationship with you and has a wonderful plan for your life, everybody kind of likes that, don't they? That sounds good. What if I tell them God has a plan for your life and it includes hell? That's terrible. Who wants to talk about that? Jesus talks about that a lot more than he ever talks about heaven. You know that? When I tell somebody you're a wretched sinner and God is overwhelmingly holy and therefore his wrath is abiding on you. Thus, you're hopeless in and of yourself and are damned to eternal hell. People don't like that. Do they? When I tell them the good news is that God in his great love crushed his own son on the cross. Because somebody has to pay for their sin. And that if they believe, they'll be forgiven. They'll be saved. And not just from their sin or the devil, but they'll be saved from the wrath of God. They often object that they're not that sinful. They're pretty good. They deserve better. But then we reply, but you need the grace of God in Christ because you can't do anything to earn his saving kindness. But it's not a message that tickles the ears. It's a glorious gospel. But if I offer you a a cure to a disease that you don't know you have or don't think you have, it doesn't seem like good news, does it? In other words, has anybody seen Monty Python's Holy Grail? Great movie. Anyway, sorry. There's a scene where the two knights are fighting. Two knights are fighting. And one's the black knight. 
He gets his arm chopped off. And just, it's just a flesh wound and keeps fighting. The other arm chopped off. Still just a flesh wound. Both legs. Eventually, he's a severed head on the ground. Telling him, come back here, I'll bite you. Right? <laughs> Thinking, it's just a flesh wound. I'm not dead. What do you need? You mean you're going to give me mercy and go on. When you see your life that way, in spite of the fact that you're spiritually dead. See, unbelievers are a severed head on the ground calling out, I'm going to bite you. Because I think I'm spiritually alive and they're dead and they don't know it. They're just like the black knight in that movie. When I tell that person, you need mercy and grace, what are you talking about? I don't need that. I want to be perfectly clear to our church. We need to pray and pray and pray that we don't become a church that's interested in making unbelievers comfortable. When unbelievers in the midst of true believers worshiping the true God in spirit and in truth, they will not be comfortable. They'll be convicted. They may be transformed and saved, or they may be put off, but they will not be comfortable. I'm not saying I don't think we should be friendly or welcoming. That's different. We will be a seeker-sensitive church, however, but we believe there's only one seeker, and that's God, and we're going to be sensitive to Him. In other words, we're going to be a church that worships Him. Please pray we don't become caught up with endless programs and activities to please the community. But instead, we're defined by a radical faith. We're defined by a vision of proclaiming the glory of Christ here and around the world. That's what we become known by. Not by our great children's programs. Those aren't bad. Not by our great men's ministry. Not bad. Not by our great women's ministry. Not bad either. I don't want to be defined by any of that. I want to be defined as a church that is known for radically proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. That's how we should be defined. Pray we're defined that way. Because a church full of great women's programs and men's programs and children's programs can be a really nice country club. If we begin to lose this focus, we will no longer be a church. We'll become a country club. Two, not only does it want to please man and not God in in its activities, but it's in in its affections, its affections and what it loves. The church cares more about being socially acceptable than it does about being spiritually passionate. In its affections, the church cares more about being socially acceptable than it does being spiritually passionate. So much like the Ephesian problem. Look what he says here in verse 2. It says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And then look what he goes on in verse 3 and says, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. It's interesting, that word what there is the Greek word post and really ought to be translated How? Remember how you received and heard. What's he talking about? 
how you received and heard. If you are a believer in Jesus and you became a believer, especially as an adult convert, you remember how you received, don't you? You remember that? The passion with which you received Christ, how excited you were. You're like a, you're like a giant sponge sucking up whatever anybody has to offer you about Christ. You want to know it all. You're joyful. You're excited. You're zealous. You're reckless. You're irresponsible. You're sharing Jesus with people, and we haven't told you yet that you're not good at it. Your neighbors are getting saved, and we're not sure how to explain that because you haven't gone through our evangelism class. You're just out there on a limb for Christ, and you're passionate. And you know what he says? Remember that. You're starting to fall into spiritual death. Remember how you were saved. Remember the passion that you had. Remember your first love. Return to your reckless love for Jesus. Return to it. Go back to that. Remember your spiritual fervor. What happens to us is that our zeal for Christ becomes by our clip or becomes eclipsed by our zeal for our own reputation. You know that? We're more interested in looking good in the community than we are about maintaining a zealous devotion to Christ. We don't want to be the person or the church that everyone calls extreme or radical or over the top. We want to be moderate and average and normal. We want to be ridiculed for our passion for Christ. I have to be honest, my own reputation is oftentimes more important to me than zeal for Jesus. It's true. I'm in conversations sometimes with people, and I don't want to let them know too much how excited I am about Christ because they might think I'm weird. Kind of bottle it up, right? I don't want to get overly excited about talking about my faith or talk about Jesus as my greatest treasure and worth giving up everything for, lest people, even people in the church, think I'm off. That's what I'm worried about. God forbid I raise my hands during worship or fall on my face or dance around a little bit. I don't love that. We're not charismatic. <laughs> Should we be doing that? Don't be that excited about Jesus. Or sell everything and go into overseas missions. That's irresponsible. What about your retirement? What about it? Where in the Bible does it require retirement? Find that for me first. What about home ownership? Can't find that anywhere in the scripture. Or pray out loud in front of other people. Because they might find out that I don't know how to use all the Christian words. Do you think God cares that much about that? Or confess my sin and my deep need for Christ. Hate to do that. People may know something about me. I don't want them to know. People might think I'm a little crazy. I need to keep my reputation intact 
So my zeal will have to be bottled up, ignored, because it just isn't socially responsible or acceptable. Third, in its lifestyle, the church cares more about being comfortable than it does about remaining vigilant and avoiding worldly compromise. The church cares more about being comfortable than it does about being vigilant and avoiding worldly compromise. If you look at verse 4, chapter 3, it says this, Yet you, still, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. Few people have not soiled their garments. In other words, most of the church had soiled their garments. What does he mean by this? Most of the church had compromised in their relationship with the world. They had fallen into compromise. They were not vigilant to avoid worldly compromise. They were more interested in fitting in than in being holy. They didn't want to live distinctively because they wanted to be thought of as being like everyone else, thus avoiding losing their good reputation and possibly suffering ridicule and persecution. They didn't want to stand up and speak the truth. What would people think? We don't want to be those peculiar Christian people who live differently because we might be found out. This was happening in Sardis. They don't want to act differently than the world because they don't want to be found out. As being a Christian. Look, the world is full of people who are the walking dead spiritually. They're dead men walking. They are zombies. Spiritually. And it's so crazy to me that we as Christians who've been given new life walk around worried about what the walking dead think about us. Uh Uh-oh, don't want the zombies to think poorly of me. It's crazy. We have life. They're dead. And we're afraid of what they might think about us. They need life. We're more worried about what they think about us than the fact that they're spiritually dead and headed to hell because we care about ourselves more than them. It's pathetic. I'm that way all the time. I don't know about you. I see my neighbors around. I care what my neighbors think. Oftentimes, I worry more about that than than I do about their salvation. Because I'm so consumed with the thought of me. Look, there's a lot of people in Sardis that had flooded the church that were just spiritually dead people. And they were spiritually dead people who thought they were saved. They were just mostly dead. They were dead. They thought they were saved. They were self-deceived. They didn't really know Jesus, not really truly repentant believers in Jesus, and their lives were not bearing any fruit. They were soiling their garments in the world. If you're living in this manner, you may be just like them. And if you are, living in that kind of unrepentant compromise with the world. Let me be clear about this. If you're living in that kind of unrepentant compromise with the world, you have no, listen, no assurance of your salvation. None. Hear that? None. You have no reason 
to go home and say today, I feel like I'm safe, I'm good. I know that I don't want to read the Bible. I know that I really could care less about going to church. I know that I don't really want to pray. I know that I have no passion for Jesus. I know that I want to just full force compromise with the world and not repent. But I'm saved. You know what? You may be in a state of rebellion and be saved. It's possible. But you don't have any assurance that you're saved. Do you understand the difference there? You don't have any reason, although objectively you might be saved, you don't have any reason subjectively to feel like you are. Why? Because when you're saved by Jesus, you're a new creation. New. 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You're given the Spirit. You're transformed. You're born again. You have new passions. You've brought, been brought from death to life and your life is changed. You want to flee from the world in its sin. You want to be different. I don't have to command the sun to shine, do I? It does by its very nature. You know what? I don't have to command Christians, real born-again believers, to love Jesus. You know what? They do by their very nature because they're different. They've been brought from death to life. You know what I have to do with Christians? Real believers, I've got to warn them. I've got to command them to not slip back into their old way of life. That's what we have to do. Does that mean you'll never act like the world as a believer? No. You're still going to sin. You've been made recognizably different. You haven't been made perfect. But they didn't want to be different in Sardis. They wanted a good reputation with the world more than they wanted a good reputation with God. In other words, what became important to the church was not seeking holiness, serving God, passionately loving Jesus, or declaring the gospel. Instead, they wanted a good reputation. They wanted to be liked and not ridiculed. They wanted to be comfortable rather than persecuted. They wanted to be thought of as like everyone else, not as some extreme zealot. They wanted to keep peace in their community and not proclaim the gospel of peace. They had incrementally worked their way off mission. Our mission is to glorify God. That's what our mission is, to glorify God. It mean, that means we must seek personal as well as corporate holiness. It means we must seek to serve with the desire to please God and not men. It means we need to pursue a passionate zeal for our God. We need to be jealous for our God even when the world thinks we are crazy. No more moderation when it comes to passion for Jesus. You drink alcohol in moderation. You are not passionate about Jesus in moderation. We need to be those who proclaim the gospel no matter what kind of social ridicule and persecution we might face. No matter what. 
Here's the command that they received. Look at what it says. I'll go through these quickly. Because it's just the opposite of what I've been talking about. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Verse 2. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. So what led to their death was the doing the opposite of what they're being commanded to do. They're supposed to wake up. How do you avoid spiritual complacency? Wake up. What does this mean to them? Keep on watching. Why use that phrase? You know what Jesus is referring to? You didn't put any guards on the back wall of your city. And the enemy snuck in and killed you because you were complacent. You fell asleep on the job. You know what he says? Wake up. Keep watching. Don't fall asleep on the job. Don't think that you're going to sit there and become more in love with Jesus by osmosis. It's not going to just seep in somehow. You have to actually be vigilant in pursuing Christ. Can't slip into a spiritual lethargy thinking that somehow we can pursue Christ and growth in Christ with less seriousness and passion than we did when we first sought salvation. Hear that? I've been talking to Tony Mesa lately who was saved a few weeks ago. And the guy is reading everything under the sun. He's all fired up. It's exciting when that happens. You know what happens though? Eventually we stop doing that. Like somehow we've gotten to this point where we've matured past it. I'm mature now. I don't need to be that excited about Jesus anymore. What's that? We become less vigilant. And you know what? We lose the passion that those new believers have. Remember how you received and heard and keep pursuing it. When you start to doubt, remember where you once were. You ever doubt? Remember where you once were. Remember that passion. Remember it. Remember the life change that occurred and be encouraged by that. But make sure you also begin pursuing new experiences of the glory of Christ. Don't just stop there. Pursue new experiences and repent you know how you do that? You know how you pursue new experience of the glory of Christ? You repent. What is repentance? Repentance is what happens when you see the glory of Christ, the holiness of God in Scripture, when you see that being declared and you sense it and you sense at the same time the overwhelming, the overwhelming sickness that's in you, the sin, the death. When you see that, how offensive that is to a holy God, You're just driven to repent. And you know what happens? At the same time that you have this sorrow for your sin, you have this joy in knowing God. Both things. We have this because we see our wretched sin in the light of the glory of Christ. And at the same time, we rejoice in the gift of now seeing the glory of Christ. It's incredible. What's the consequence of not repenting here? Look at verse 3. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. This is reminiscent of that imagery, isn't it? Where they came up the wall and they didn't know that the the soldiers were coming and they got attacked. 
Like they were asleep. They came in like a thief, these, false sol- these soldiers from Cyrus's army did, the soldiers from Antiochus's army. They came in and snuck up on them, took them by surprise. Says, you know what Jesus says to the church? If you don't repent, I'm going to come like a thief. I'm going to come when you don't know it, and this coming isn't good. What he's telling the church? I'm going to end your church. It's going to be over for you. This isn't the second coming. Some people think this is the second coming. The problem with that is two things. One, it's conditioned on their repentance. His second, his, if this is a second coming and it was conditioned on the repentance of Sardis, then I guess we know why Jesus hasn't come yet because apparently they must not have repented. I guess that would be the conclusion. But this isn't what he's talking about here. He's talking about a specific coming in which he will come and end their church. It's a warning to them. Finally, the commitment to those who conquer, overcome. Look at verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Three things he says. Listen, believers, people who overcome, you know who he's talking to? He's talking to you and me that believe in Jesus. And the reason we're overcomers is because there's a battle. It's not because you've walked into this life with Christ in which now suddenly... You're just perfect and don't struggle anymore. That isn't it. You're in the greatest struggle of your life. And by the power of the Spirit and by the vigilance of yourself, both things are included. It's a cooperative work in growing in faith and growing in grace. By both of those things, you are now growing and you overcome all the pressure that comes on you from the world to be go, go back into sin. All the Garbage that comes out of your own heart to pursue sin. When you are one of those people, believers, you know what he says of you? He will clothe you in white garments. You know what that means? He's going to put on you the holiness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? In spite of all your sin, in spite of everything you and I have done, he, Jesus says to you, I will give you my clean white garments. I will treat you like you live my perfect, holy life. And when the Father sees you, you know what he sees in spite of your sin? He sees someone as holy as his son. Imagine that. And he says, I will not remove your name from the book of life. This is an expression. It's called a litotus. And that's, I'm sure, a helpful word for you to hear. But it's expressing a truth through an understatement and a negative. That's even more helpful. Thanks, Chad. He's saying something in the negative. He's understating something in negative to make you aware. I will not, I will never blot your name out from the book of life. Your name was written in the book of life from the found, before the foundation of the world, and it can never be removed. It's in there. It can't be taken out. You have to worry about losing your salvation. I will never remove your name from that book. Never. I will clothe you with my holiness and I will confess your name before my father and the angels. Can you imagine that? You die, your eyes close in death and your eyes awake to the reality of God and all of his glory and his holiness. And you stand there before his throne and Jesus comes up and says, Father, I'm confessing this person is mine. He's mine. Angels, everyone in heaven, listen, the heavenly court is sat. Everyone know this one is mine. It's what Jesus says he'll do. 
He belongs to me. I'm declaring it to all of heaven that this one belongs to me. Can you imagine that day? It's incredible. You know that happened for Leon Hardcastle at 6.10 on Tuesday morning? You realize that? He stood in heaven clothed in white. His name was there in the book. And God said, Jesus came up, this one's with me. Look, angels. Look, heavenly court. He's mine. That's glorious. And that's what God promises us. It's incredible. It's incredible. That's the good news. If we stop proclaiming that, we'd just be a country club and not a church. And if that day happens, I pray Jesus will come like a thief and remove us. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and its truth. I thank you just that you are a great king. I thank you that you have promised us such glorious rewards to be confessed by your son before all of heaven. What an incredible, incredible reward. Lord, I pray that we would we would seek that. We would not care about our reputation, but that we would just care about yours. The world may know what a glorious and righteous king you are. In Jesus' name, amen.